Hi, I'm Isaac Butler. I hope you've all enjoyed our first episode of Lend Me Your Ears about Julius Caesar. I just wanted to cut in as we're working on our Richard II episode to let you know that Slate Plus members actually get an additional full-length episode on each play every month. So after you've listened to my deep dive into the social and political themes of that month's play, you can then listen as I'm joined by some really smart critics to discuss the play in a modern context. To chat about Julius Caesar this month, I got Vanity Fair film critic Kay Austin Collins and The Handmaid's Tale screenwriter Dorothy Fortenberry to talk more about what it's like to read about elitism, the power of persuasion, and the problems with populism in today's political atmosphere. Beyond these bonus episodes, Slate Plus members also get extended and ad-free versions of Slate podcasts and early access to discounted tickets to Slate live events. And you'll be supporting the important journalism that Slate does every day. You can sign up now at slate.com slash Shakespeare. In the meantime, here's a preview of the Slate Plus episode we did for Julius Caesar. I think it's a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy. That's that's absolutely true. Yeah, because I do think like the rap on this play, and it's one that I agree with to some extent, is that it's not exactly like the great, celebrator of human beings right it's not right. it's not like the it's not like it's like the common man <laughs> yeah no totally i have a friend who actually a, a friend who's a shakespeare scholar who really can't stand this play on some level because just all the characters are such well as you put it ding dongs <laughs> but i mean one thing you guys are making me wonder i mean i'm really curious first of all about this production that you guys saw and the dc riots connection because something i kept thinking about as i was reading and this is not this is not a strange feeling as I'm reading Shakespeare, but I just become instantly curious about the variety of interpretations, particularly because this play in some ways feels open-ended, but but also just because, you know, I have a, an edition that has these, you know, annotations and notes, like so many editions. And I was noticing that some of the, the footnotes about the ways that Caesar in particular is being characterized were not really matching up with my interpretation as I was reading, and I just kept wondering, okay, like, what are people doing with it? I'm, like, I'm not right. surprised to see that, like, there was a, a DC Riots version of this, for example. Y- yeah, well, that now I should say it's been 30, or it's been 24 years or whatever since that production. But yeah, no, that was a production that was very much set in DC. You know, it was being yeah. performed in DC. People were in suits. There were laptop computers. And if I remember correctly, after Sin of the Poet is torn apart, which is when there was intermission, when we came back from intermission, you know, the set was kind of destroyed in this way that I think, you know, the 68 riots are very present on the minds of people in D.C., or at least they, they were in, nine, in the 90s. Right. And, and yeah. you know, I remember people saying like, oh, yeah, this is sort of what's going on. If you're going to do a riot in a play set in D.C., you can't help but evoke that. Sure. I mean, that does bring us to this interesting thing, which is like Caesar's a really odd character in this play. You said, Cameron, that the, the notes weren't tracking with how you – apprehended Caesar in it. So what was Caesar to you or you to Caesar as you as you read it? Well, first of all, I'm I'm really down with this idea that broadly speaking, the people, the men in particular in this play are pretty stupid. I mean, you know, the notes were convincing me that Julius Caesar is someone who is fearful, but also putting up a front about, uh, for example, the conversation that he has with Calpurnia about, you know, about whether or not to go into the Senate and she's having these premonitions and and there's this conversation about, you know, I'm not scared. And she's like, well, let's just sort of say that I'm scared and that I don't. But like this way in which he's sort of bloviating per the notes in the book that I was reading. But I was like, you know, maybe this dude is like actually just confused. 
you know, my, my, read, my read is just like, you know, everyone else is looking outside and saying, wow, the sky is falling. Clearly some shit is amiss. And he's like, yeah, uh, you know, my wife's having these nightmares. Right. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. she's going on about. Well, he has this amazing moment. Let me see if I can if I can find it really quick. That is one of I think there's a lot of dark comedy in this play. And I think this so is, too. This is one of the ones yeah. that I think is the most amazing. Where he's like, Calpurnia had this dream where the statues were bleeding, and she th- and it's like very obviously a dream about his death. And they're like, No, 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 it's a dream about your glory. Let me see right, if I can right. if I can. Uh, yeah, this is what I mean about everyone being a ding dong. Like he finds that persuasive. He's like, okay. Yeah, but being a ding dong, but also in that moment, like accidentally and like inventing psychoanalysis. Like, right. We're gonna sit down and <laughs> interpret interpret dreams for a second, everybody. Right. This is where you know he describes the dream to Decius, right? That she had this dream where his statue, which like a fountain with a hundred spouts, did run pure blood, right? Mm. And then the the Romans are smiling and bathing their hands in his blood. And Decius says, this dream is all a misinterpreted. It was a vision (laughs) fair and fortunate. Your statue spouting blood in many pipes in which so many smiling Romans bathed signifies that from you great Rome shall suck reviving blood. I laughed out loud when I read that. Oh, really? Yeah, I I mean, right. I think it's darkly funny. I think it's really funny. The, The thing that I kept thinking about in these moments where like someone says something super clear and then someone else is like, or this, and someone's like, hmm, swayed, swayed, found that persuasive. And we're like, really? Is I feel like I was so much more on board with the idea that this is how people are like having spent all the time I've spent on social media Mm. because I feel like I watch Facebook threads and like someone will say something really strongly and then someone else will say the opposite and the original person's like, hmm, persuasive. And I'm like, wait, what? You (laughs) you just, your whole thing. You just switched your whole thing. But like, you know, I, I feel like I've, I now have watched in real time the way people communicate to each other. And mm. I'm like, yeah, yeah. If someone comes along and is like, although that, you know, dream sounds like it was bad. In fact, <laughs> maybe it was awesome. And you're like, maybe I am awesome. Okay. <laughs> yeah. oh, that, is, that is what people do. All people. Yeah. And, you know, I, I find that really interesting on a, on a political level as well. Not just because those are often political arguments on Facebook. It's not just like the good place is great. Actually, it's terrible. It's, uh, you know, it's it, it's often about politics is that, you know, republicanism, like a Republican form of government takes as its premise that if a bunch of people get together and just sort of like hash it out, A, that they'll do it in good faith right. and B, that the end result yeah. will be usually not always, but usually you'll figure out the right thing to do. Right. And in Julius Caesar, there's no point where a group of people have an argument in Julius Caesar and the conclusion they come to is the correct one, as far as I know. <laughs> and, and and in some ways, I feel like the desire to be good is one of the most like easily swayable things. Like like the fact that Brutus wants to be a good guy, that notion that like you're a hero is in fact just another point of vulnerability. Right. Um, instead of making you more solid and, you know, less swayable, it makes you more easily swayed because you're like, oh, what's the way that I can be the good guy in this situation? He's compassionate conservative 101, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's the, he's like, you're clearly on the wrong team, but your reasons to yourself do morally make sense to me if you really believe what you believe. But why do you believe what you believe um, is my question yeah. for Brutus the entire time, right? It's just like, I mean, the ease with which someone like Caesar is kind of led to the slaughter makes sense because he seems confused to me because there are so many signs and symbols in the world and he ultimately 
is easily flattered, it seems. But Brutus is just like, no, you, dude, you like, you've got this dark cloud over this decision that yeah. you clearly do not want to make. Like something in your stomach's telling you, you know, every time someone says like, I had a good night's sleep, he's like, well, that's because you're not like inwardly tormented, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so of course, and it's just like, why are you this way? Yeah, I also think it's such a weird thing that the play does where the whole thing kind of hinges on this moment we don't see. Like mm. this sort of three times rejecting the crown. Right. Like mm. this giant decision is basically someone comes to Brutus and is like, hey, this thing happened. And it's so ambiguous because there's a version where like, oh, my God, he rejected the crown three times. He must hate the crown. Right. What a great guy we have in Caesar. But instead, it's like, well, but he like said no, but he was like leaning in it. And like, I could tell that he really meant. Yeah. And like, it's such a an odd thing like it's such a to me not a persuasive way of describing something you know and i and i am curious for shakespeare like you could show that scene you could show the crown rejection you could actually put caesar up there and watch him do it and let the audience have a sense of like how into this crown does he seem or not seem but by making it happen off stage we're kind of left just like brutus not knowing what Caesar really wants, how much he wants it, how that moment played with the public, it's all really ambiguous. To listen to the rest of this episode, sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash Shakespeare.